It's very precious for me to be with you uh, this evening, and uh, it's a privilege to be asked to open God's Word. We do pray for you here um, at college in Brisbane, and as you continue to seek for a home, we're praying for that, as well as partnering in your work of getting the gospel out to this part of the world. My friends here are a constant encouragement to me, as is what God is doing among you. So it's just lovely for me uh, to be back with you. Um, this is a first for me. I don't think I've ever spoken at, at what is two in the morning for me. Um, I've certainly never preached on Lamentations at two in the morning. Um, so this evening, we've got, a, we've got a hard ask. In one way, I'd like you to open your bulletin or your Bible. We're going to look at 66 verses of a part of the Bible that you probably don't know very well. Now, the 66 verses, I'm not trying to wring every last drop of meaning out of every verse. This is one of those parts of the Bible that, that, that's as much kind of felt as it is understood, and it's a part of the Bible that God has given us to enable us to walk through the challenges and the brokenness of our lives. So let's ask God to speak right into our lives through His Word this evening. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you that you give us everything we need to live for you. Thank you that you've already given us the Lord Jesus Christ, and in him uh, we find everything we need for life and godliness. And we thank you that you speak to us of the Lord Jesus through your word by your Spirit. So we pray that whether we're not following you yet or we've been following you for many years, whether life's great just now or life's a complete nightmare, we ask that you would speak through your word, for our good and for the glory of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Imagine for a second that you've just got an email or read something online that has made you deeply angry or frustrated or upset. So what do you do? In a fit of hurt or rage or malice, you start to thump out a cathartic and less than godly response on your keyboard, or your thumbs start to move in a frenzy of uncontrolled angst as you let the person and the world know exactly what you think of them. And before you've time to think, let alone regret it, you've hit send or post or chat or whatever. That's what we can do today. It used to be you had to get a piece of paper and a pen and you had to write it out longhand, and then you had to get an envelope, and you had to go get a stamp, and you probably had to go to the mailbox. And there was some chance that in that process you would calm down, you know, and you'd come to see sense, and you'd tear up the letter, or even as you're walking to the post box, you'd decide not to go through with it. It's kind of harder now. That's why there's some emails I just don't send without asking my wife Fiona or Andrew, my vice principal in college, to read. Sometimes we just need to calm down, step back, reflect, think, is this a sensible thing to do? Well, Lamentations was written before any of that reflection happened. <laughs> the thing that makes Lamentations, unlike any other book of the Bible, is that it's so gut-wrenchingly kind of hard on the sleeve-ish, politically incorrect this is an in-the-heat-of-the-moment response. This is the email you really wanted to send. Now, Lamentations is written just after the Babylonians come and invade the kingdom of Judah, and they flatten Jerusalem. It's about 587 B.C. 
by two and a half thousand years ago. Now, the book of Jeremiah tells us about the build-up and the actuality of the Babylonian invasion. But it's long and thoughtful and considered, and it's intense, but, but kind of moves along slowly. And it's looking back on the lessons that needed to be learned. Lamentations, this is the real-time, uncensored, uncut footage. As the writer comes to terms with seeing his city, his nation, flattened, burned, seeing his spiritual heritage destroyed, blown up in front of him, it's raw, it's emotive, it's a bit disconcerting. See, for about 500 years before, God's people have turned disobedience into an art form. God's given them chance after chance after chance. The people in the southern kingdom of Judah have seen their northern brothers in Israel be destroyed by the Assyrians, and it's made no difference at all. <laughs> They've just kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing until suddenly God says, enough is enough. Now you need to experience my fatherly discipline. Now you, you experience the curse of the covenant rather than its blessing. They lose everything, their city, their land, their freedom, their temple. And Lamentations captures just how it felt in real time. Now, we're jumping into the middle of the book, so let me quickly bring you up to speed. Lamentations is a book that's made up of five poems. First one's in chapter one, not surprisingly. It's, called, it's an acrostic poem. What that means is first line begins with A, second line begins with C, third C, fourth D, and so on. Okay? 22-line poem, it's all about sin, how bad the sin of Judah is. Chapter 2, it's another one of those ABC poems, another 22-line poem. This time it's about God's anger. Both of those chapters are poems that are put in the mouth of a woman called Lady Zion as she speaks for God's people about sin and God's wrath. Then we get to chapter 3. It's the center of the book. It's not just a poem. It's an epic poem. This time it's got 66 lines. And this time it's not just ABC. It's AAA, BBB, CCC, DDD, and so on, all the way through. Center of the book. This is as intense as the Bible gets. But this time it's not Lady Zion that speaks. Finally, the writer of the book of Lamentation steps forward. I think it's Jeremiah. Okay, it doesn't say it's Jeremiah, but if it sounds like Jeremiah and it smells like Jeremiah and it looks like Jeremiah, it's probably Jeremiah. If we time to read through the book of Jeremiah and then read the book of Lamentations, you go, it's probably Jeremiah. So I'm just going to call him Jeremiah all the way through. Okay, you'll look, he opens up in verse 1 of chapter 3. Okay, what does he say? He says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Now, that sets the tone for this evening, okay? The next 66 verses are going to be pretty heavy. There's a little bit of light in the middle, but most, most of it is heavy. But as we step through it, I just want to point out four things that help us to get the, the shape of the authentic Christian life, what a gospel-shaped life looks like in the middle of this broken world. As we listen to this man 
in the middle of probably the most intense experience he ever went through, something that's as intense of anything we'll ever go through as human beings. Now, it's interesting, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he introduces himself by calling himself the man. It's not the usual word for the male of the species. It's the, the, the strong man, the valiant man. He says, okay, this is me talking. The strong man. Now, he can only introduce himself to his readers like that without using his name if he knows they'll get who it is. It's partly why I think it's Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah is the one who has suffered and survived. Everyone knows that this prophet was the one who kept on being knocked down and getting up again. Everyone knows that Jeremiah is the man who's been rebuked and mocked and attacked and undone for saying to God's people, the Babylonians are coming, we are about to be judged. And yet, even though everybody opposes him, nobody listens. They give him a nickname, you know, terror on every side, because he's always saying, oh, the Babylonians are coming, there's terror on every side, and nobody listens. But he goes on. <laughs> he says, I am the man who's seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. But boy, was it hard. If you look with me at verses 1 to 6, what you'll see is actually the reversal of one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, Psalm 23. Because this valiant man says he's come up against a shepherd, but not a kind of caring shepherd, a savage shepherd, who rather than protecting him, drives him into the darkness, verse 2. Rather than leading him into green pastures, this shepherd has, according to verse 4, made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me, not with goodness and mercy, but bitterness and tribulation. He says, this shepherd doesn't walk with me through the valley of deep darkness. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He said, he's going through the most awful trauma imaginable. And it's not over yet, verses 7 to 9. This, this savage shepherd seems to turn into some kind of callous captor. God has turned into a jailer who, in the words of verse 7, actually walled me about so that I can't escape. He's made my chains heavy, though I call and cry for help. He shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my way with blocks of stone. He's made my paths not straight, but crooked. Jeremiah says, not only does God not listen to my cries for help, that's bad enough, but more than that, God's actually shutting him down, opposing him. See, the startling thing about this part of the Bible <laughs> is that the poet calls all this for what it is. You can't avoid the basic honesty in the way in which Jeremiah is speaking. How can he be so honest with God? In fact, I think you could be forgiven for reading Lamentations 3 and thinking, how did this get into the Bible? Was somebody like not paying attention when it came to Lamentations and just kind of let this slip through? No, it's here because God wants it to be here. Because this kind of honesty can only come when there is real relationship. Think about it for a second. How many people would you say 
you are really honest with most of the time. Who gets the pre-processed, unedited version of who you are and how you're feeling? My guess is it's a pretty short list, really. It's the people who are closest to you. It's only the people that you love and who love you at a deep level that you can actually really let your guard down and be completely honest with you. Now, the fact that Lamentations is in the Bible, the fact that Jeremiah speaks to God like this is actually an affirmation of the fact that our God is a deeply relational God. This is the God, the covenant God, who all the way through the Bible says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Our God is absolutely committed to having a relationship with us. And for those of us who've been united to Christ by faith, Paul's words in Galatians 4 are true of us. Because your sons and daughters, sons being the most privileged ones in the ancient world, so everybody gets the privileged position, because God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That, that Abba word just, just means Dad. It's that word that you can really only use of your own natural father or an adoptive father who has loved you and poured himself out for you. You see, the freedom that we have in Christ, the intimate relationship that we enjoy with God through the Spirit enables us not to pretend but to be real even in those moments when our prayers are not carefully sanitized expressions of what we think we should believe. But when we can just tell God the way it is for us. Like when we think God is actually hunting us. Just, I think verses, kind of, the verses following verse 10 are some of the most remarkable verses anywhere in the Bible. Just look at how Jeremiah describes God. You're like a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding who tore me to pieces. In verses 12 to 13, he paints God as an enemy archer who has him lined up in his sights. God bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've never had anything stuck into my kidneys, not that sharp. But that's got to make you wince. The effect of all this, verse 14, I've become the laughingstock of all my people, the object of their taunts all day long. He says God's treatment of him has filled him with bitterness. He's been made to drink his fill of wormwood. That's the bitterest of herbs. The strong man bites the dust, literally, verse 16. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. One of the great things about living in Australia is, you know, you're always close to the beach. Everybody lives around the coast because the beach, it's not hot and deserty in the middle, like in the middle. So we go to the beach pretty often. Every so often we have a picnic on the beach, but the problem with having a picnic on the beach is that sooner or later sand gets on stuff. Last time we were at the beach, I made the stupid mistake of taking a bite out of an apple and then setting it putting it down in the sand, picking it up again. Ugh. My teeth grind on gravel. 
for one second, then I spat the apple out. It's horrible. Verse 17 sums it all up. He says, my soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. No peace, no happiness. He's had enough. Verse 18, so I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from Yahweh, from the Lord. I've got nothing left. Have you ever felt like that? Lamentations gives us words when we feel like that. Now, there's, there's lots more to come in this chapter, but we do need to stop and reflect on why all this space is given over to the, the poet's angst, pain. Well, it's striking that even though he describes God in pretty unflattering and even ill-considered terms, he doesn't rage against God. Nor does he falsely accuse God of anything. He, he is convinced all the way through of several things. He's convinced that God is in control. He's convinced that God is responsible at the ultimate level for everything that's happened to him and his people. He doesn't question that God is the only one who can bring relief to his mess. So what does he do? Well, he speaks out of what we might call the honest pain of faith. He takes it to the one who can do something about it because he's in control of it. And even in his pain, he knows that at the end of the day that God is at work in and through this. Now notice there's no pretense. There's no kind of you know, false piety. There's not even an attempt to speak with theological correctness. I think if you say, Je look, Jeremiah, do you know that God is not a bear lying in wait for you? He's <laughs> going, yeah, of course I know that. He just calls it the way he sees it. In fact, the way it feels. He's not just trying to fake it until he makes it. He knows his perspective is limited, but he just speaks out of his pain and his, and his despair to the God who is the God of all wisdom and the God of all power and ultimately the God who he knows is willing to do something about his pain and act in mercy. That's why I want you to read and hear these words and be real. If you're here as a guest this evening, if you're still checking out the Christian life, I, I do think it's worth my pointing out that this is one of just... <laughs> the most surprising things about the God of the Bible. That the God of the Bible is a God who can handle it when we speak to him honestly. Who doesn't insist that we dot all our I's and cross all our T's and get it right when we talk to him. A God who says, come and tell me, I can handle it. And he's also a God who is so straight with us that he enables us to be straight with him. He's a God who brings us the relief that comes from just being honest. I think to be human is to feel the pressure to pretend. Even when we become Christians, that pressure doesn't just vanish instantly. I think there's something deep-rooted in us as human beings that, that just wants to act like everything's okay, to to give the impression that everything is much better than, than it actually is. 
From the moment that Adam, our first father, tried to pretend that he hadn't just rebelled against God in the garden in Genesis 3, we've been pretending to ourselves, to each other, and to God. So sometimes when the wheels are falling off, when we're dying inside, when our relationships, when our life is falling apart, when church appears to be going backwards, we tell ourselves that the best thing we can do is to spare ourselves and everyone else the pain of talking about it. Just gloss over it and say, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm doing fine. <laughs> the writer of Lamentations hasn't fallen for that particular lie of the devil. He knows that God can handle it and that God cares about it, and so he's relentlessly honest. See, the gospel tells us that our Father has drawn us into a relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. He made us. He knows us. He loves us. So he wants us to be honest with him because he can handle it. I have currently got three teenage daughters, which is probably the most character-building experience of my life to date. But sometimes each of the girls will, will do something that, that makes me smile. They'll go, Dad, there's something I want to... Oh, no. So that beginning of a statement always brings out, I think, the best in me as a dad. <laughs> because I can see that there's something troubling them, and they just, they're afraid it's going to make me angry or sad or displeased or something. But because I love my girls, we, you can't leave it like that. And that actually invites me to say, look, just tell me. <laughs> it's okay. There's nothing you can say that's going to make me love you any less or any more. So just, just tell me. And that natural response of a father is actually just a pale reflection of the constant, unrelenting, unshakable stance that our God takes towards us. God says, be honest. I made you. I know you inside out. I've sent my son, the Lord Jesus, to die for me. What do you think you can say that is going to make any difference? So how real are you being with God just now? When you prayed this morning, if you prayed, were you actually honest with yourself? Did that flow over naturally into what you said to God? Or did you try to kind of sanitize it to say what you thought you should say? Did you tie yourself in knots <laughs> trying to persuade yourself and God that you're better than you are and life is better than it is? We don't need to do that. The glorious thing is that because of our God and what he has shown us, because of lamentation, but above all, because of the Lord Jesus, we know there's nothing we can say to God that will shock him or take him by surprise or persuade him that he's made a really big mistake getting involved with us. So let's be real. That's what the first 18 verses of Lamentations 3 is all about. And then from 19 through to 39... 
Again, there's far more in, in there that we can deal with properly, but it's basically saying pursue God Himself. In the middle of your suffering, pursue God. I watch a TV show sometimes in Australia called Survivor. There's an American version as well. They drop 24 people on an island in Fiji or somewhere. And then through a series of physical challenges and basically lying about each other and making alliances, you have to vote people out one by one until the sole survivor is left and they get half a million dollars or something. It's really a great illustration of human sinfulness going to play it out on your TV screen. But yeah, it makes for, makes for good TV. Uh, there was someone interviewed on the show just a few weeks ago, and uh, she was a long-distance swimmer. You know, that's why you know, she was kind of involved in the show as one of the champions um, set against ordinary mortals like us. And they asked her, what do you think you have to do to win? And she said this. She said, to win this game, you need to learn how to suffer. Well, strangely, that's a pretty good summary of the Christian life. <laughs> to live as a Christian, you, ha you have to learn how to suffer. I think Jesus gave us a strong hint of that when he said, in this world you will have trouble. Whatever shape your suffering takes, whether it's suffering because of our own stupidity, suffering because of the sinfulness of other people, or just sinful, suffering because of the sinfulness of the world, whether that's the brokenness of creation or because when we stand up for Jesus, well, we'll suffer. Whatever, whichever one of those factors is at play, we're going to have to learn how to suffer well. And that's really what verses 19 to 39 is about. And let me cut straight to the chase. How do you suffer well? You suffer well if you pursue God himself, even through suffering. Just glance with me, verse 19. Just picks up where verse 18 left off. To remember my affliction and my wanderings, to think back is wormwood and the gall. Even thinking back about what I've been through makes me feel horribly sick. I have a, an awful taste in my mouth, which leads to verse 21. So this I cause to return to my heart, and therefore I have hope. Now, I wish we could have read all the way through Lamentation from chapter 1, verse 1, just to, to help you to get what a great relief this is. There is no hope, no bright light in this book until chapter 3, verse 21. At last, the poet says something positive. In the midst of the darkness, he is hope. It's the fact that God himself is waiting on the other side that enables him to suffer well. John Piper, in his remarkable book, Future Grace, takes us right to the heart of what God does by allowing us to go through suffering. Here's what he says. God so values our wholehearted faith in him that he'll graciously take away everything else in the world that we might be tempted to rely on, even life itself. He wants us to be able to say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is graciously in this life, in the here and now, in every difficulty we face, helping us to treasure him above all things. 
That's what God's doing to his people through this Babylonian experience, stripping everything away from them so that their only hope is in God alone, which brings us to 3.22 to 24. These are the best-known words in Lamentations. In fact, they're probably just about the only words of the book that you've ever heard of before, largely because of the song we sung earlier and the one, Great is Thy Faithfulness, we'll sing in a few minutes. They're great songs. The problem is, you notice, they don't give you verses 1 to 21. They go straight to 22 to 24 to the happy bit. No, we actually need to read the whole book and see that this is like this little bright light embedded in five chapters of misery before you really get how bright they are. Now, these words are inspired by Exodus 34. Back then on Mount Sinai, God had passed before Moses and said, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God had said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. But that will involve both blessing and curse, both salvation and judgment, both pleasure and pain. Jeremiah knows plenty about the pain of disobeying God. But now, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Literally, he says, new things for mornings. <laughs> Great is your faithfulness. It's one of the most comforting statements in the whole Bible. When we wake up, we find God himself poised by our bedside to help us in a whole host of ways that we don't deserve. New mercies. I'm not the best when I'm woken unexpectedly. <laughs> the girls have to be really desperate before they wake me in the middle of the night. Not because I'm mean, just because I just go, and scare them when they're already scared or upset, you know. But the picture here isn't like that. It's we wake with a gentle touch and a reassuring voice and the glorious realization that what we were stressing about before we went to sleep has now evaporated in the face of the comforting presence of God himself. Steadfast love of God never runs out. His mercies never come to an end. Just think about that for a second. You know, sometimes I, I have this enduring fear, you know, that, that at one stage I'm going to pray, you know, and, uh, you know, Jesus is going to say, oh, you know, Gary, I'm really sorry. You, that's one too many. You know, I've spoken to my father, and he's just gone, no, sorry, too much. He said, too many chances. That, that is not going to happen. <laughs> because his mercies never come to an end. In Jesus' death in our place, he has opened up to us an inexhaustible stream of mercy. <laughs> of God treating us in the way that we just don't deserve. It's astonishing. And so it's almost like the reset button is, is, place, is, is hit every morning when we wake up. <laughs> you know, we, we never even start to, to erode the supply of mercy. <laughs> it just keeps growing. 
And verse 24 backs that up by saying, the Lord is my portion, therefore I'll hope in him. Now that portion word, it's usually used of the land. My inheritance, the, the bit of Israel's blessing that I get for me. <laughs> but this isn't the land that we're talking about. We don't just get land. We, we don't just get kind of material blessing. We don't get that. We get God himself. That's why our greatest need is to pursue God. Sometimes I find reading old stuff, <laughs> it's just really helpful because people in different generations, often they just see things in a slightly different way. They spot stuff that we miss. Listen to these words. They were, they were preached in a sermon in 1733, <laughs> nearly 300 years ago. A man called Jonathan Edwards wrote this. God is the highest good of the thinking creature. And the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven to fully enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant activities here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the real thing. These are but scattered beams, God's the sun. They're but streams, God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it falls to us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven. It falls to us to make the seeking of God himself our highest end and greatest good. The whole work of our lives to which we should subordinate everything else. For why should we work for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness, which is knowing God? himself. It's interesting, I don't know what it's like in, in Dubai, but, but, but where I live, um, and I think in the UK as well, just now, over the past 10, 20 years, I think we talk a bit less about knowing God. When I was a student, you know, the kind of staple diet of books for Christians had titles like Knowing God, The Pursuit of God, The Knowledge of the Holy, Desiring God. Where I live just now, we're kind of thinking much more about strategy and, you know, how to do things better. And <laughs> I think Lamentations 3 brings us back to the fact that God himself is our goal, our delight, and our joy. And that in the mess of life, even as we suffer, even as the weight of our pain presses down on us, we have to remind ourselves that we are here to know and delight in God. And that even the brokenness of our world in God's sovereignty pushes us to that. Just look at 3 verse 25. On the face of it, it's hard to swallow. Okay, the poet has been stung, shut in, savage, shot with arrows, poked in his kidneys. But he can still say, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. How can he say that? Only because he knows that pursuing God and knowing him is what we're here for. It's the best thing there is. That's why he can say, it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord, even though he's saying it in the middle of a war zone. It's why he can say, it's good for a man that he bears the yoke in his youth. Now, he's not excluding anyone. I think he would say it's equally good for young women to bear this yoke of suffering. Why? Because the hard stuff pushes us to seek the one who really matters. 
It's not that suffering is fun, but if you've got to learn hard lessons to drive you to God, well then bring it on. See, when suffering comes, 28 to 31, we need to humble ourselves and think so that we make sure that we pursue God Himself. Let him sit alone in silence when it's led on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may, there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. Why? Because God is good and just and sovereign. 31 to 31, to 31 verse, sorry, 3, 31 to 34 is right in the middle of the book. And right at the middle of the book, in the kind of eye of the storm that is Lamentations, what do we see? God is good. Yes, he sent the Babylonians, but he's done it for the good of his people and his glory. The Lord will not cast off forever. 32, he may have caused grief. He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he doesn't, doesn't afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man. See, God gets no pleasure from inflicting pain on his people. His judgments are not the way he wants to relate to humanity, but are his response to human sin. Punishment is like an alien work of God given reluctantly after lots of warnings. God is full of loving kindness and mercy, and that's how he wants to relate to humans. Affliction is temporary. And when it comes to God's people, it's always followed by mercy. That's why we should keep pushing through, pursuing God through suffering, because He's good. And because of that, whatever appears to be happening before us, we can be sure that He's also just. We do have to slow down and think about this to seek answers. 34 to 36, you'll see the language is really unusual. It makes us do that. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Literally, surely God sees all this. Oh, yes, he does. And he's ordering it all for our good. Pursue God himself, even through suffering. Verse 39 is interesting. Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Actually, we can't complain. The level of justice, we have nothing to moan about. And when we think about it, when we realize that God is actually working through this to move us to seek Him above all things, it leads us to marvel at His grace. So pursue God Himself, even through suffering. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't know what you're going through. I, uh, the last thing I would want to do is minimize what you're going through. But whatever you're going through, I don't think it's any worse than what Jeremiah is going through. What does he say? Pursue God through your suffering. And if that's true of Jeremiah, how much more do we see the depth of God's compassion for us in the suffering of the Lord Jesus? And as Paul writes about that, here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. 
For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. I think there are a few sentences in the New Testament that are harder than to believe and live than that. Especially for those of us who are prone to fix things, who are prone to be a little bit arrogant. But Lamentations, the Apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus himself, makes that clear. We need to be real. We need to pursue God himself because he is the strong one. Then much more quickly, let me just point out the, the, the way in which the chapter finishes, and then we're done. The third thing that you see from verses 40 to 51 is that we need to push on to real repentance. At this point in the poem, Jeremiah calls on his brothers and sisters to think, examine themselves, and come home to God. 3 verse 40, let's test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. And they say, we've transgressed and rebelled, and you've not forgiven. Now, I could be wrong, but I, I'm pretty sure that 40 to 51 is to chase out to the, the fact that repentance does not actually come very easily to people like you and me, or Jeremiah, or the people of Judah. In, in verse 40, Jeremiah says, come on, everybody, let's return to God. It's not quite that simple what happens next. There's a very big difference between saying sorry and repentance. Okay. You know, there are lots of ways that you can say sorry. Sorry kind of doesn't suggest that your heart has been softened and you've come to terms with your sin and, and, and. Oh, sorry. <laughs> what that means is, oh, it's no big deal. Let's not talk about it anymore. Let's just move on. I'm sure you could supply lots of other ways of saying sorry that show you're not really sorry. See, repentance is a multi-step process that can be fairly complicated. A document that sums up the teaching of the Bible called the Westminster Confession of Faith that was written in the 17th century says this, real repentance happens when a sinner so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring, trying to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. Okay, to repent is to admit the fact we've sinned, step one, release how, realize how awful our sin is, step two, break with our sins, step three, run to God, step four, commit to live for and with Him, living differently. That's at least five steps. And in my experience, it can be really hard work getting there, either when I'm dealing with myself or other people. Being really sorry often involves one step forward and two steps back until it gradually dawns on us once more what we're really like and what we've really done and now what we need to do. These verses chart part of the journey. Jeremiah calls the nation to stand with him in repentance, but, you know, their city's just been trashed. They can still smell the smoke from the burning temple. What do they do? Look at verse 40, 43. They actually blame God for their predicament. Similarly, similarly in verses 46 to 48 and 49 to 51, they're really more concerned with the devastation and the despair 
than actually running back to God. Tears may be tears of repentance, but sometimes they're just tears. Verse 46, all our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with river of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite until the Lord looks from heaven and say, and so on. There's no doubt that the writer of Lamentations 3 is feeling the pain, but that's just the start of the journey. The logic of this chapter, and actually the whole book, is that we need to push through if we're to learn what God is to teach us. If we're to grow through suffering, whether self-inflicted, inflicted by others, or that which comes to us just because of the fall, then we need to push beyond an admission of guilt and sorrow for guilt to the rejection of evil, recommitment to obedience, and a glad return to God himself. It's the kind of thing that James talks about in chapter 4 of his letter. When he says this, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and flee from you. He'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn, and wait. Let, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. I think that's about seven steps. And he will exalt you. Lamentations is one of those parts of the Old Testament that says, don't be satisfied with shallow responses to sin. Push through to real repentance, which the gospel of the Lord Jesus frees us to embrace. So be real, pursue God himself, push on to real repentance. And just finally, to complete the picture from 52 through to 66, put your hope in God alone. There's another abrupt change of tone. Now it appears that Jeremiah is focusing on his real flesh and blood, Babylonian-speaking attackers. They hunted him like a bird, flung him alive into the pit, and threw stones on him. Verse 54, as the water closed over my head, he said, I'm lost. What did he do? He looked back to a day in verse 55 when he called from the depths of a pit. Well, and God did answer. You came near when I called you. You said, don't fear. You've taken up my cause. You've redeemed my life. And on the basis of the fact that God is a rescuing God, he asked God to do it again. He asked God to rescue him. He also asked God to deal with the Babylonians who are trashing his city. Underneath all this is a confidence that Jeremiah has that God alone can sort this out, so he puts his hope in God alone. Verse 59, you've seen the wrong done to me, O Yahweh, to judge my cause. You've seen all their vengeance and all their plots. You've heard their taunts. Until finally in the last stanza of the chapter, he speaks with confidence that God will judge justly in future. You'll repay them, O Yahweh, according to the work of their hands. You'll give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You'll pursue them to anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. His point's, in, point's actually quite simple. Even in the face of destruction, even in the experience of abandonment, he knows that hope can only be found in one place. Justice can only be found in one place, in the God who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth. So why have I dragged you through these 66 verses this evening? Because this sweeping, stunning poem does so much more than giving us a promise to remember when we get up when it's still dark and we've been having a terrible week. This chapter gets under our skin, forces us to face reality, drives us to pursue God himself. It urges us to press on to real repentance and hammers home the fact that the only real hope is ever found in calling out to God. 
But there is one more thing I need to say. This poem is the work of one who introduces himself as the man. Remember how it opens back in 3 verse 1? I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. I don't know whether Jeremiah was thinking of the Lord Jesus or not. But as we read this poem about a man who suffers with his people, stands with his people, and speaks for his people, our minds are driven forward to, to a man who does all that and one thing more that Jeremiah couldn't do. Because Jeremiah couldn't suffer for his people. He couldn't take their place. All he can do is stand there as one of them and cry to God with them and for them. But as we watch and listen this, to this strong man, our minds are drawn to the ultimate strong man. The proper man, the one who lived and died and rose again and rules for us and has rescued us. The Apostle Paul wrote this in Romans 5, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For if because of one man's trespass, Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. An old hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height, expresses it like this. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. O generous love that he who smote in man for man the foe, the double agony in man for man should undergo. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we see most clearly that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What else is there for us to say? But the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in him. I know this isn't an easy season for the life of Redeemer Church at any level. I know you're facing challenges and frustrations which are very draining. I know too you're weak, frail, and sinful human beings like me. So hear these words. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So what else is there for you to say? But the Lord is our portion. Therefore, we will hope in him. Amen.